This is Against All Enemies, a show about threats to American democracy. Political violence is on the rise. An alarming percentage of Americans believe they may have to take up arms against their neighbors. Some are already doing so. Against All Enemies highlights the activities of extremist organizations and their enablers. Our goal is to educate, not to alarm. The threats are real. But if we know what we are up against, together we can beat them. It's Ken Harbaugh with Against All Enemies on the Midas Touch Network. I vividly remember January 6th, 2021, listening to NPR on my car radio as the attack on the Capitol unfolded. I knew that Donald Trump posed a grave threat to American democracy, but I still did not anticipate the violence of that day. As I pulled into my driveway in a state of semi-shock, I texted my wife to come down to the car and listen next to me. I knew that moment would stick with me and would change our country forever. You have all seen the footage from that day. It was not a peaceful protest. It was an attempt to overthrow our democracy. I've talked to a number of people on this show who were there that day. I want to share with you one conversation in particular with someone who has a perspective about what happened that not only incorporates the experiences of the day itself, but the years leading up to it and its continuing aftermath. On January 6th, 2021, Tina Gwen was a reporter for Politico on assignment to the Capitol. The vast majority of her colleagues in the mainstream media had no idea what was about to happen. But Tina had a sense for the danger our democracy was about to experience. She had spent her early days as a reporter in conservative newsrooms, including a stint at the Daily Caller, where she worked for Tucker Carlson. She had an inside track into the thinking and the paranoia of the extreme right, and she knew that the ideas her editors dismissed as fringe were now solidly part of mainstream conservative politics. A colleague of hers, who had been a war correspondent overseas, warned her that covering the J6 crowd needed to be approached the same way as reporting from a war zone. Even as steeped as Tina was in MAGA ideology and extremism, she was surprised by what she saw. In our conversation, she also shares her perspective on how the J6 insurrection didn't end that day. Election deniers still hold enormous sway within the Republican Party. That is actually the scariest part. The most dangerous insurrectionists weren't the ones who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. They were the ones who lay in wait and who continued to plot behind the scenes to dismantle Democratic safeguards. I'll let Tina speak for herself. My full interview with her comes out on January 16th. So um, the story I ended up pitching in order to like get around that block was, I'm going to go to the Capitol on January 6th, and I'm going to interview people who are there to intimidate and harass lawmakers into voting for Donald Trump. And, and you know what happened? I ended up at January 6th, the morning of the insurrection, like in the vicinity of the Capitol, watching this play out in real time. But even you were surprised at the the tonal shift in the crowd on January 6th. The, you met Proud Boys for the first time. You met people who were prepared, it seemed like, for combat before it even started. When did you realize on January 6th that this would be 
a, a defining day for America? I was crossing the street outside of the Capitol. Um, I had been filing inside a Senate cafeteria when one of my editors was like, hey, it looks like there are some um, guys trying to hop the fence. Can you go check that out? And so I get out of the Capitol literally minutes before it gets locked down. And I think I made two critical mistakes going into this reporting. One was I assumed that the Capitol would be well secured. Like it would be locked down. There was all of this federal secure, like federal um, law enforcement, probably the National Guard who would show up and make sure no one got in. And two, I thought that the rank and file of the like MAGA movement who had shown up that day were at least somewhat respectful of law enforcement. Like I just come out of a summer where I was reporting on militias trying to help cops fight Antifa on the streets and stop looting and whatever. And I was walking down the street trying to get a sense of how big this crowd was. And there was an officer who was one, two lone officers trying to get people to stand on the other side of the street to keep Constitution Ave clear. And this guy just started screaming, just disobey, just disobey them. And everyone in the crowd was getting all riled and was like, yeah, yeah, why is it that they're keeping us from the Capitol? The Capitol belongs to we the people. That building belongs to we the people. And the moment I started hearing that, I was like, oh, I'm going to get a little further away from this to try to observe this from the background and make sure that if something happens, I'm not going to get stampeded. And then they stormed the Capitol in front of me. And uh, yeah, that, it, that was that. <laughs> As a credentialed journalist with, uh, I can't remember if you were with Politico or Vanity Fair at the Politico. At the time, Politico at the time, a lot of people in that crowd would have seen you as an enemy of the people. I mean, their leader called you an enemy of the people. I'm referring to that Trump speech, of course. How did you personally feel about your, your safety, um, your security in that crowd on that day? I thought I was well prepared. And the moment that you're well prepared for a crowd to turn hostile, the more you feel equipped to navigate it. Um, I had been talking to a war correspondent who had covered many, many, many civil protests in major cities across the world. And he was just constantly telling me in the lead up to this event, here's what you do in case a crowd stampedes. You have to be, you have to have situational awareness of what is happening at all times. And one of the questions he asked me is, when does it benefit you to identify yourself as a member of the press and when will it harm you? And in that moment, I was like, okay, no, I should not be identified as a member of the press. I put my badge away. I had dressed in advance as someone who was really like non-threatening and little and tiny and cute, which was easy because I'm short. And just like someone who was not there to drill them and ask them what they were doing or worst case scenario for them, try to get their faces on camera. Like I could continue to report. I could continue to observe what was happening around me and record broadly what was happening because people in public can be taped. Um, but 
adopting the practices of journalism while looking at like a journalist would have been dangerous to me. And later I remember this guy from the AP who was dressed like a photographer, like big vest, all black clothing, was like had cameras and lanyards dangling from his neck. People looked at him and went, you're a member of the lying press and then started beating him up. Um, yeah, there's just so many things in any sort of situation like that that you have to consider. And uh, honestly, that war correspondent was also at the Capitol covering January 6th. So I just kind of felt psychologically safe knowing that like if he's there and he is not going to rescue me, he's made that very clear. I'm able to handle this on my own. Let's go. Thanks for watching, everyone. I am trying something new, a Patreon page. It's a way you can support the show and make sure we can keep bringing you this content. My hope is that we can continue to limit the amount of ads we run here and that we can also build a community around this effort to fight back against extremists and their enablers. Subscribers to the Patreon page will have access to exclusive and ad-free content and also early releases. Please consider helping us out. Go to patreon.com slash Ken Harbaugh or click on the link below. We're just getting started with this, so your support early on will make a huge difference in building real momentum. Thanks so much for helping out. Did it take you a while to process what had happened, or did you know in the moment, as you saw the Capitol being stormed, that this was going to change American politics? Hmm. I wasn't quite sure how it would change American politics is the thing. Like, this was a goal that I had had nightmares about for years leading up to this. The moment that I saw that Trump was getting a bump in 2015 primary polling. The question, though, always for me was, were the systems in the American government robust enough to hold back this movement? Were they strong enough? Were the American people confident enough and knew what to do in order to prevent a wave of election denialists getting into Congress? And that was my, and that was something I just like could not let go of throughout reporting on the 2022 uh, midterms, because you saw all of these Trump-backed election deniers beat their opponents in the primary, get into the general election, get like unnervingly close to um, their Democratic counterparts. And eventually, when you realize that, like, that red wave that had been promised based on the fact that Biden's economy and um, handling of COVID had made him pretty unpopular among the American people, like, it did not happen. McCarthy only got control of the um, House by like seven, like no, four votes. And that was sort of a moment for me to step back and go, all right, cool, this is like strong enough for now. I don't know how long that is going to last and I don't know how creative this movement will be in trying to get around it. Um, can I bring up a piece of reporting that I did yeah. really recently at Puck? So there's there's been a lot of um, 
stories leaking into the media about how there is like an administration and waiting for Trump when he comes back in and everyone's going to slot themselves into the federal system to purge um, the like administrative state of non-believers and people who had opposed the Trump agenda the first time coming in and uh, whatnot. And here's what they would do in response. Um, I did a little bit of digging, and it turns out it's not that there is just one coherent plan. There are two competing plans. Uh, one of them is from the Heritage Foundation, which is more conservative and has a very specific vision for how the country should be run, and probably they're trying to drag it back to the original Burkean um, definition of conservatism, but addressing Trump-era issues. And then there was this other group called the America First Policy Institute that had been dedicated to creating a Trump administration. Like, and the difference between Heritage and Trump was that Heritage at least, like, promotes itself as being faithful to the Constitution. AFPI is just going, you know what, we're just going to make sure this is weak enough for Trump to do whatever it is he wants. Like, the uh, migrant ban, for instance, a Heritage person would be like, sir, that's unconstitutional. Uh, an AFPI person would be like, nope, let's do it. Let's do it, Mr. President. I'm going to make it happen for you. Um, and these institutions had been at, like, healthy competition with each other for donor money and for attention and for influence. Um, the Trump campaign was like, please stop talking about this. You are freaking everyone out. Please stop talking about this. But that impetus is still there inside the movement. And Trump is, also, is like, ultimately the person who decides who gets put into the administrative positions. And the fact that the conservative movement has had, you know, seven years of cogitating on what that would look like is, you know, something that I think people should pay attention to. That was Tina Gwen with a warning for the country. But I want to leave you on an uplifting note. Here's an excerpt from President Biden's speech last night in which he appeals to the better angels of our nature, as any American president should. We all know who Donald Trump is. The question we have to answer is, who are we? That's what's at stake. Who are we? In the year ahead, as you talk to your family and friends, cast your ballots, the power is in your hands. After all we've been through in our history, from independence to civil war, to two world wars, to a pandemic, to insurrection, I refuse to believe that in 2024, we Americans will choose to walk away from what's made us the greatest nation in the history of the world. Freedom, liberty, <laughs> democracy is still a sacred cause. And there's no country in the world better positioned to lead the world than America. That's why I've said it many times. That's why I've never been more optimistic about our future. And I've been doing this a hell of a long time. Just to remember who we are with patience and fortitude, with one heart. We are the United States of America, for God's sake. I mean it. There is nothing. I believe with every fiber, there's nothing beyond our capacity if we act together and decently with one another. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I mean it. We're the only nation in the world that's come out of every crisis stronger than we went into that crisis. 
<clears throat> that was true yesterday. It is true today. And I guarantee you will be true tomorrow.